And if you have a Bible, I would love for you to turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 17. We're going to just look at one verse there. John chapter 17, verse 17. We'll give you a second to turn there, and then we'll read that before we get started. John chapter 17, verse 17. These are the words of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we gather this Lord's Day to magnify your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess this day that we need you in the most desperate way possible. We need you to illuminate the scriptures for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. To grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. Harden not our hearts, Father, so that we can be about your business of implementing the crown rights of King Jesus into all areas of life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This message is called No Other Standard, and it's part one of two, two being what we'll obviously cover next week. Um, but before we talk about all that, I want to remind you of a couple of things. We have spent a few weeks, the past few weeks, laying the foundation for our young church plant, and I thought it would be helpful to remind us really quickly of what we have covered so far. In short, we have talked through our calling to take the land, to press the, the um, lordship of Christ into everything, to disciple nations, to teach them to obey Christ. Um, we've talked about our vision, all of Christ for all of life. And we've also talked through our distinctives, things like a big kingdom-oriented, kingdom-saturated gospel, um, comprehensive Christianity, which Jordan covered last week. And, and, and for the most part, um, that was, if you missed that, make sure you go back to listen to that message talking about um, one world, one king, and one kingdom. We've also covered things like the law of God being the abiding standard um, for all of our dealings. We, we, we um, talked about an optimistic, robust, post-millennial eschatology, and so on. All of these things are incredibly important because the reality is the current state of evangelical Christianity in America is direly in need of revival. We spend so much time trying to make our institutional organizations, our 501c3 religious clubs, so relevant, so hip, and so cool. The irony is that we have become irrelevant and ineffective. This is because we have failed to use the means that Christ has given us for the taking of the land. Instead of building rival institutions, we retreat uh, to our Sunday morning rock concerts, light shows, and inspiring messages, which are simply humanistic TED Talks designed to make you feel good about yourself. Whenever we circumvent God's prescription for biblical mission in the world, we inevitably end up preparing ourselves for God's covenant sanctions. I'll say that again. Whenever we circumvent God's prescription for biblical mission in the world, we inevitably end up preparing ourselves, unbeknownst to us, of course, for God's covenant sanctions. Said differently, we, we, think, we think we're dressing up Christ's bride to make her look more attractive to the world, when in reality we are prostituting her out, and our God is a jealous God. This is precisely where we're at now as a nation. 
The institutional church, by which I simply mean the outward, visible, organizational structure of the universal church at large, the institutional church is a dying cause. I do not mean that the church is, is a dying um, cause if by church we mean the regenerate people of God, right? God will always have his faithful remnant um, of, of, rem, of regenerate people on earth. What I'm talking about is the institutional church, as in the organizational forms and patterns of how we worship God. Those external forms, those 501c3 compliant activities have become idols, idols worthy of sanctions. If we will not return to the scriptures, Jesus Christ will make us return to the scriptures. And how will he do that? He'll remove everything so that that's all we have left. He'll remove everything else so that's all we have left. So, as an assembly whose existence depends solely upon the Holy Spirit and not government sanction, we believe here at Cross and Crown that we must organize ourselves in such a way as to offer an alternative way of life to the prevailing culture around us. We want to live in distinct ways, and we want to do so based upon the law word of God. So we, we do not want to petition Caesar to allow us to do our little religious rituals. That's not what the church is supposed to do. We want to build something different, something that requires no permission, and something that both agitates people and comforts people, deconstructs and reconstructs. So that's, that's why it's important to have these distinct, distinctives and this unique mission. We are not trying to get a seat at the cultural table so that people will people around here will think Cross and Crown Church, they are so cool they are hip, they have all the right stuff going for them. That's not the game we intend to play. What we are doing is, is trying to build something different. An alternative culture that challenges the humanistic institutions of the day. So that's, that's really what the first few weeks have been all about. Um, but some might say, you may hear this, well, that's sure, that's fine and dandy. You know, we, we get it. You're not happy with how people do church, and you're trying to do something different. By what standard are you doing this? What makes you think that you are doing things the right way? That sounds incredibly arrogant. Well, these are great questions, and I want to take the time to answer them. When it comes to our vision, mission, distinctives, and core beliefs, it's important to identify at the outset our most essential distinctive, our most essential value, our most important building block. This chief building block really serves in some sense as the thing that holds all of this together. So kids, if you want to know what in the world, what, why are we doing this each week, what's the thing that's kind of holding all of this together to keep us going, the thing upon which everything else rests, here's what I would say. The Bible alone is the standard of truth. The Bible alone is the standard of truth. Okay? That's where we're going from here on out. In his book, A Christian Theory of Knowledge, Cornelius Van Til wrote this, quote, The essence of the idea of Scripture is that it alone is the criterion of truth. Van Til, one of the most brilliant men of the last century, is right. Our, our presupposition, our foundational conviction is that to know truth and be able to justify truth is to believe the Bible, is to believe the Holy Scriptures. 
Everything in this world is to be measured, compared, and assessed by Holy Scripture. Nothing else can hold the weight of such a demand. Now that's not just me or even Van Til saying it. Jesus said this very same thing. Look in your Bibles again to John 17, 17. Let's, let's read it again. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Sanctify them in the truth. Remember, this is his prayer to the Father, his high priestly prayer it's come, come to be known as. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word, speaking of the Father's word, right? Your word is truth. Now, notice that Jesus didn't say that God's word is true or that it even contains some truth. He said that God's word is truth. There is a major difference here, one that we must not miss. Had Jesus said that God's word is true... We might be tempted to think that the Bible is true because we are able to use some other standard out there to verify its truthfulness. If the Bible, listen, if the Bible is just true, then something out there must give us the standard by which we can say that it's true and not false. But that's not our position. That's not our worldview. That's not our presupposition. We don't believe the Bible contains some truth or that it is simply true. And that it's one truth, you know, among a whole bunch of other standards of truth that sit over there on the shelf. The Christian position, this is the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of Scripture. The, the Christian position is that the Bible alone is the final standard of truth. Truth is based upon reality. Reality is what God says reality is. And what God says reality is, is in and through the Bible. God's holy word is the ultimate definition of what is true and determines what is false. It is itself truth. It is verifiable by nothing else. It is the revelation of God himself and God himself simply cannot be verified by anything or anyone else because he alone exists as truth, okay? So think about that, kids, for a second. God is God, and no one else is God, right? That's our belief. You can't look at something and say, well, that's how we know that God is God, ah, because of this, or X, Y, Z, or whatever, something else. That's not how we do it. We start with God, period. The implications of this are far-reaching, but know that the big implication is that because the Bible is the ultimate standard of truth, it is also the very reference point for determining the veracity of other truth claim claims. The Bible is the very reference point for determining the veracity, the truthfulness of other truth claims. The, the Bible is the final arbiter for determining whether or not something is true. Okay, if, if an idea or a philosophy or a political thing, a concept, does not conform with Scripture, then you should know it is false. If it does not conform, if it does conform to Scripture, then it is true. If you remember, Pilate asked Jesus in John 18, 38, he said, what is truth? What is truth? Sounds like a good Greek um, philosopher. What is truth? The answer is, truth is that which God says, and that which God says is given to us in the Bible alone. Now... I want to connect this to a broader theological theme in Scripture, and then next week we'll apply it more specifically as we consider presuppositional apologetics in practice. 
how, how do we take this lofty, wonderful concept of the truthfulness of God's word and then do something with it? That's what I want to do next week. The posture of the Bible itself is one of self-authentication. The posture of the Bible itself is one of self-authentication. Any ultimacy claim must be self-referential. Okay, Any claim of superiority, of supremacy, of ultimacy, anything like that has to be self-referential. Now, please follow closely because I don't want you to get lost. You're going to think we're in the deep woods. We're just a little bit in the weeds, so don't panic, but hang with me. If it is true that the Bible alone is our standard of truth, and indeed that's what we are arguing for, we must be careful to keep in mind that it is not divorced from God himself, okay? It's not, a little thought experiment, a little visual here, it's not as though we have God over there, you know, over in the corner over here, um, doing his truth thing, because God in his being, his ontology, he's just, he is who he is, and he is true, and he's sitting over there in the corner, and then over here in this corner, we have this Bible thing, and it's true, and the two things aren't connected at all. That's not the case. The self-authentication of the Bible is rooted in the self-authentication of God himself. So put it, let me put it another way. The Bible exists as the self-revelation of God. They're not two disconnected truth things that, you know, maybe they overlap a little bit. You know, they pass each other in the hall, say hello, and that's about it. That's not how that works. The Bible is the self-revelation of God. When God created the world, he asserted his authority from the very beginning. When God created the world, he asserted his authority from the very beginning. He didn't think about creating the world and then have to go to the county office and apply for a builder's permit so that he could get to work. He didn't appeal to some other standard for permission to create all things. He didn't ask for your permission. He didn't ask my permission or anyone else's permission to create the world. The creation of the world was and is rooted in God's free, God's uncoerced, gracious will. The very fact of creation asserts in and of itself supremacy and authority. Flip back to John chapter 1 real quick. The Gospel of John. Just keep flipping back a few pages. Gospel of John chapter 1. John 1 verse 3 says this. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through him, through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, think about that for a moment. Think about what this verse claims about God's creative work. All things, and by all things we mean all things, all things were made through him, through him, that is the divine Logos, Jesus Christ himself. All things were made through him, which is to say Jesus is the means by which God created all things. He's the means. Um, the, the Father spoke things into existence, but in that speech itself was Jesus Christ. You can go back um, to Proverbs 8 and you can read about the wisdom of God in creation. Jesus is the wisdom of God and so on and so forth. So with that, the text tells us, though, that without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. 
This is a way of speaking in the negative sense about basically that which was already just said, namely, that out of everything that was made, there wasn't something made in the world apart from Christ. It's not as though Jesus made 95% of all things that exist, right? He, he, he got most of the periodic table, and then he stopped. And then there was another 5% that was crafted by Hercules or some other god, some other false god. You simply do not have created things out there that are labeled something with a different origin, right? Made in China, made in Indonesia, right? Made by Jesus, made by Zeus. And next week, we'll look at some of the other creation stories or lack of creation stories like evolution and so forth. But for now, I simply want you to see how the doctrine of creation, God's creation of the world, is tied to the Bible's claim of being truthful, um, of supreme and all these other things. The reason that we must insist on a doctrine of creation is because without creation, we simply have chaos. Without creation, we simply have chaos. Those are the only two options. It's either God's creation or man's um, usurpation of God in reliance upon chaos. This is why men reject the universe and they continue to insist on a multiverse. Sinners do not want the creator God, but instead, as Romans 1 points out, they want to worship the created order instead of creation. And we'll look at that text next week. This is important because when we, when we think about the creation of the world, we are asserting the authorship of God in all things. We, we, are, we are saying to everyone, yes, th- that tree out there, God's hand was in making that tree. God's hand was in making that child in the womb. God's hand is in everything. And there's not too many cooks in the kitchen of heaven because it's just God and he makes it all perfectly and no one can mess with it anyway. But in other words, Jesus Christ is the imputer par excellence. The imputer. Funny word. Only the creator God can impute meaning to first order things. Only God imputes, gives, grants, um, gives all of these um, things meaning. Only Christ Jesus, the means of God's creative work, can say this and not that. Only the Trinitarian Godhead who made all things can call this a thing over here and that a thing over there and that thing over there is not a thing. That is a twisted version of man's concoctions and all these other things. Now, usually when we think about imputation, um, we think about the imputed righteousness of Christ for those whom he has justified. And that is a right and true doctrine, and we heartily say amen to that doctrine. But the imputation I'm talking about is the imputation of meaning, of definitions, of parameters. This is to function in this way. That is not to function in that way, because this means this and that means that. Why are, why are things the way they are, kids? Why are things the way they are? Why is it that it's dark outside right now? Why is it that we just have to go to sleep when our parents tell us to go to sleep? Why is it that things, why is it that I have to eat something, otherwise I get feeling angry and or uh, irritable? Why, is, why, is, why are things the way they are? Why is there no other standard? Why is it that God has the right to define things the way he does? And here's the simple answer, kids, all right? 
He is the creator God. He's the cre- That's why you have to do what your parents tell you to do. That's why the sun does what it does. That's why the weather changes. That's, that's why you have enough oxygen to breathe. That's why blood is pumping through your little body. Because God is the creator God, and he made it all to work a certain way. He is the imputer. He gives meaning and purpose to all things. As creator, God has both the authority and power to impute meaning to all things. He has ultimate authority and unending power. But one of the ways he has exercised this power is through his word. In one sense, Jesus Christ, he is the word of God. He is the Logos of God, the speech of God. When God speaks, He speaks through Christ. Christ Jesus is the mediation of God. Christ carries out all that God, God wants. When God decides to act in the world and do something in the world, Jesus is the means of that actions. And one thing we affirm wholeheartedly is that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and... I know there's a few of us in the room who are amped that Christmas is coming. So yeah. I know Jordan's pumped about that. And we, why would you not want to celebrate the coming of Christ in the flesh? I, that's for other theological minds to argue about on Facebook. Absolutely. Um, Excuse me. Jesus Christ is the divine Logos. He came in flesh. Jesus Christ came as a person, as a man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And yet, what what does John argue here in, in the first few verses here? He isn't just giving us a doctrine of creation. He's giving us a doctrine of incarnation. Jesus took on flesh. The reason, listen carefully, the reason that there is no other standard, the reason that the Bible alone is the standard of truth is because, catch this, the Bible is the explanation of the divine Logos taking on flesh. The Bible exists because Jesus Christ took on flesh. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible is the Spirit's testimony of the incarnate Son. The Bible is the Spirit's testimony of the incarnate Son. It's not that we just believe the Bible because we need something to rely on, and we think, you know, we think atheism and naturalistic evolution is dumb, so, you know, we gotta have something other than that. We believe the Bible because the Bible is the Holy Spirit's testimony of the incarnate Son. We have a Bible because the Creator God has chosen to act within space and time. Now, contrary to the deists who insist on this abstract divinity who is unconcerned with creation um, and an infinite Creator, uh, Christians teach this distinction between a creator and creation, and not just that, not like just the deists where, you know, God's out there on vacation golfing and he cares about nothing that's happening here. Christianity teaches that there's a creator, there's creation, and that infinite creator works inside his creation. That's why we can believe and trust the Bible. We're talking about history, no doubt, but we are talking about history as guided by the Creator God, the Creator God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ. 
We're not appealing to a standard in the universe that's unconcerned with history. Evolution is unconcerned with history. So history means nothing, which means it is whatever you make it to be. And if you want to become like Hitler, then by all means. We're also not appealing to a standard in the universe unconcerned with false history. Um, we're not deists, and we're not pantheists who think that God is in nature and those two things are united. We're not naturalistic evolutionists, and we are not atheists who insist on no standard. We are Christians, and we confess that God the Father sent Jesus the Son so that God the Holy Spirit could testify to the sending. That's what the Bible simply is. The Bible is the covenant law word of God brought low. The divine Son of God stooped low, born to a virgin, laid in a feed trough so that through the Spirit's work in the world, we might bring God's renewing transformation into this world. And here's the thing. The Bible isn't just an ancient book full of historical anecdotes um, that, that we get to use to argue with atheists and other people who don't like Jesus. It's not some sort of historical development that is only there to fight with people and destroy the humanists, though admittedly it does serve that function too. <clears throat> the Bible is the self-revelation of God. When we affirm this self-attesting authority of the Bible, we're not dualists who think that you know God dropped this magical book out of the sky and somehow this book gave us some truth about the universe. And we don't quite understand it all, so don't even try. That, that is not what we confess as Christians. Since we are Christians, which means that we believe, we believe that Jesus Christ came to rescue a world in derelict condition. Our belief is that God really did make all things, that he really does control all of history, and that he really has given us his Bible, his holy Bible, as a means of attesting to his authority. So the Bible is not just one authority with, among others, nor is God's authority over here, the Bible's authority over there. God has given us a Bible as an expression of His authority. God has given us a Bible as an expression of His authority. That's why we can say without hesitation that the Bible alone is the standard of truth. We're not saying that it sits alone in the corner as a standard of truth. It is God's truth. Now, <clears throat> I mentioned this earlier, but it's, you know, it's not God over here and the Bible over here, and once in a while they, they talk. God himself and Scripture itself are the same authority. We're not talking about two different authorities here. Each speaks to the other. And how do we know that the Bible is authoritative? Because God has said so. Well, how do we know God is authoritative? Because the Bible has said so. And you might be tempted to think... Well, that just sounds like some fancy philosophy there. You know, that's just a bunch of pretentious nonsense. And now I'm going to look like an idiot in front of my friends to try and explain that. In our affirmation of the word of God, no one, no one is asking you to check your brain at the door. No one is telling you to stop thinking and just trust. Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you want true knowledge, authoritative knowledge, wisdom and instruction that surpasses the scholarship of all of our secular overlords who would suggest otherwise, 
then we have to begin with the person of Jesus Christ. Our confession is very, very, very simple. We are Christians and we believe the Bible. But we do not believe the Bible because Grandma said so. We believe the Bible because the Holy Spirit has changed our hearts. We believe the Bible because Jesus Christ died for my sins. We believe the Bible because God is this covenantal God and His divine Son worked in history. We are a testimony to that truth. The Holy Spirit has carefully tapped on the shoulders of prophets and apostles, guiding them to write biblical history down by the authority of Jesus Christ himself. This is important to understand. The Bible wasn't written by men who had nothing better to do than you know, curate some stories and, and hopefully someday turn it into a coloring book and sell it on Amazon. No, it was written by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. These men were covenant men, brought into the fold of God through Christ, and they were compelled to give us biblical history. The Bible alone is the final standard of truth because Jesus Christ took on flesh. Because Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Because Jesus Christ died on a Roman cross. Because Jesus Christ rose again on the third day. It is true because God made the world out of nothing. Because God made a covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, and David. Because God chose Moses and Israel to be his vassals. Because the Spirit has been poured out on the church. Our doctrine of Scripture is not derived from the schemes and inventions of men. It is derived from the covenant God working in history. And what we must not do is blow that off. We must not teach our children the Bible in such a way as to divorce it from the person of of Jesus Christ. We cannot treat the Bible as though it was just another book on the shelf alongside Homer's Iliad and Plato's The Republic. We cannot just affirm the truthfulness of the Bible in our minds and only in our minds. The truth of Scripture must permeate us on multiple levels. It must inform us as individuals, as families, as churches... And as a civil society, we are Christians. And I'm going to wrap up by saying a few things here. If there is ever going to be revival and reformation, then we have to be convinced of this. The Bible alone is the standard of truth. If our children are going to fear the Lord and walk in obedience to Him, then they must know that the Bible alone is the standard of truth. If we are going to see reformation in our churches, which we desperately need, then we must return to the Scriptures. The Bible alone is the standard of truth. If we want to disciple the nations and teach them to obey Christ, then guess what? We have to actually believe that the Bible alone is the standard of truth because we're supposed to teach them, and that doesn't mean we just teach them how to cook, though we can do that too. Our institutions are useless apart from the Word of God. Our faith is useless apart from the Word of God. Our efforts at living faithful Christian lives are useless apart from the self-authoritative, self-revelatory Word of God. We call it the Word of God because it comes from God. There is no other standard. So return to God. We must. Return to His Word. Be about the kingdom as revealed in His Word. Read the Bible. Apply the Bible. Love the Bible. But ultimately remember that it is Jesus Christ, the Word of God, whom we worship. His book is a means of exalting Him. And exalt we must. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we have sung the Word, read the Word, preached the Word, and now we come by faith to taste the Word. We ask for your blessing, Father, as we seek to live faithfully unto you. 
We ask that in our confession of sin that you would exalt your son in us as we live in a wicked and perverse generation. With the testimony of your holy word, bring us sanctification as we seek to live for you. Would your word continue in us from generation to generation as we seek to obey your great commission. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to come forward to take a piece of the bread and take the wine. Um, and you can take it back to your seat and we will take it all together. Come church and welcome to Jesus Christ.